I'm your host, Liana, and you are listening to the Butterfly Effect Podcast, where each week, me and the occasional guest will have some authentic conversations about a variety of life topics, so we got a little bit of something for everybody here. Thank you so much for supporting me and tuning in, and without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Butterfly Effect Podcast. And today we got a special episode. I am joined by Jay Misk, (laughs) a.k.a. Jenny Miska, for those who do not know her high school nickname. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Hello, hello. Jenny, you are a woman of many things, a pole dancer, a bachata dancer, (laughs) a master's degree holder. You do it all. So welcome. I think you're going to bring a great perspective to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay! Um, to start, as always, I like to start with having the other person tell me how they remember meeting me, <laughs> just because I like to hear it and document it. So um, I'll have you go first, and then I will share my first memory of you, which I'm actually like, I don't even know if I know it. I know the general area, but I'm like the very first time meeting you. I'm not, I actually don't know if I know it. So we'll see. So you go first because I know you know. <laughs> no, I don't. I you don't? Really? That's really? the same thing for me. I know it was my junior year um, of high school mm-hmm. at cheerleading. I know it was at cheerleading, but I, like, I don't remember the first day that you showed up. I just, you were there and you were good at cheerleading and I was like, oh, cool, new person. Like, <laughs> Because that was what we were doing at the time, right? We were trying to build up our program. We were trying to make it better. And mm-hmm. then I was like, oh, cool. There's another person who is a cheerleader who is good at what she does. And then I don't even know how we got from that to here, but we, Absolutely <laughs> we did. Not. Yeah. Well, just a little background. Me and Jenny, yeah, as she said, we met in high school. We actually ended up going to the same college. She's a year older than me. And she ended up going to a different college and transferring to the college that I went to, which was really like a great story because I think... We helped turn that program around, <laughs> too, period. <laughs> but it was like, it, we definitely got closer because we were captains together. Um, and then you, like I said, you, you graduated early, too, didn't you? Kind of-ish. Yeah, you graduated early, like a semester yeah. early. And I, I took a little bit longer. I took five years. So hey, you, that's okay. That's and that's okay. okay. I still got that degree. Um, but you ended up getting your master's on the other side of the country so we were at long distance friendships for a while and we we still are now but (laughs) that's but we still stayed connected even throughout that so that was really cool and like we always have phone call dates and catch each other up on what's going on in life and I really value our friendship so I don't know how we first the first sight of meeting you but that's where we are now (laughs) I support it um yeah I just remember you from cheer (laughs) and then you would always drive me I was gonna say yeah. the driving thing. I driving home from school. I used to drive people home from school a lot, so mm-hmm. I started driving you home as well. And then sometimes it would be like, "Oh, can you can we stop at the bank so I can put my like paycheck in?" And like, "Oh, let's grab noodles because we're hungry." Yes. And so it would Lots be like noodles. kind of like a lot of hangouts coming out of the like necessity of like, "Oh, let's hang out because we want to work on this thing," and like because we need to do this errand. And mm-hmm. then it would like things would develop, and we'd have these natural organic conversations yep. that we're having now. And, like, they just continue to build in that way. Yeah. I think I love it. I love our friendship. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today, I mean, y'all know from what you've heard so far, and if you don't know, now you know. <laughs> I love things that help me understand myself, understand people around me. So whether, like I've shared, I love astrology because not that I necessarily think that it is a blueprint of how each person lives their life, but it does help you understand 
different things about different people. And I think it does fit a lot of people, personally. And I do plan to do, like, at least a section of an episode down the road. So those of y'all who are not necessarily, like, educated on astrology can at least get a little bit of a taste of it and understand how you can use it to help your self-growth and your self-understanding. Um, along with astrology, I really, I'm sure y'all have heard of it. It's blown up on the internet. Social media definitely has done its damage <laughs> on it. But the love languages, I know everyone in the dating phase has asked, what's your love language? <laughs> and I know that's the one I go to. So um, Jenny, I'm going to pass the mic to Jenny. Well, she has one clipped on her, but <laughs> I'm going to have her explain a little bit why she is the best person to bring on this podcast about lo- the love languages. Is Ooh. is it by a name? Ooh. Steven something? Gary Chapman. Oh, Dr. not Gary. Steven. <laughs> not Steven at all. <laughs> Gary Chapman? Yes, Dr. Gary Chapman is the original author of the Five Love Languages book. He published it in 1992 um, with this idea saying, hey, I, so he's, for working background, he's a clinical psychologist, I think clinical psychologist. He has a practice or had a practice and he would see people and they would talk about their relationships and he started to notice a trend with people where he saw, oh, different people tend to experience and communicate their affection for their partner in different ways. And when the one partner expresses it in a way that the other person doesn't understand, then they have miscommunications and a lot of times it's why relationships end up fumbling. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, He wrote this book where he's like, you know what, from what I've done, there are five ways people express affection, and that's just how it is. And he wrote a book, we as human beings love categories, so we're like, five ways? Yeah, awesome, I understand it. Um, And then he went on and made a zillion copies of these books, he started translating them into other languages, he started, um, like, just publishing everywhere, and people got really hooked. And the thing is, when we talk about psychology or a lot of psychological background, is people do research studies before they, they make grand sweeping gestures like this. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do any research or data collection or any formalized processes. He didn't do anything like that. He just said, you know what, I think this is it, and published it. And so I had a really big problem with that as a person who does psychological research, because if we're going to talk about this, and if clinicians are going to use love languages in their practice with people, they should have like psychological background on it. They should be saying, hey, we see that this is what actually exists, so let's use it to help people. And so then it became what it is today. And the, the way that I headed into my master's degree with this specific concept is I really, when I first heard about love languages, I was hooked too. I was like, oh my God, yep. it makes so much sense. <laughs> I love um, love. <laughs> but then when I broke it down, I was like, oh, it's missing data. And this is a thing we do in all sorts of topics in our, in our society today. We're like, hey, here's a thing that makes sense, but there's no data on it. So um, that's what I did. I decided to break it down and try and look at it from a different perspective. I love it. So before we get too deep into that and your process of even come, like what that was like for you writing your master's thesis, like can you break down the five love languages? So we got number one. So the five love languages Gary Chapman describes. The first one is words of affirmation. Mm -hmm. This is the idea that that. like people say, I love you and they, they directly tell you the things that they like. Um, second one that's very common is physical touch, which is what mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yep. Hugs, kisses, yep. being embraced, all of those things. Um, third one is gift giving, which mm-hmm. is what it means, um, getting gifts, but not just like in the materialistic sense, but like if someone like sends you a song and it's like, oh, this song oh, made me think of you or like okay. things like that. It's basically the act 
representing a person thinking about you is some sort of oh i love that i thought that was falling under the you'll get there but a different one so the fourth one is quality time Mm -hmm. quality time is basically spending time with that person it doesn't have to be doing something outlandish or something specific just spending the time and then the last one acts of service which is when somebody does something to help you so maybe they um like wash your dishes when you're done eating or maybe they will like pick up groceries for you because you've had a busy day or something Mm -hmm. like that doing doing acts that are trying to make your life a little bit easier those are essentially the five love languages that gary chapman outlines okay so before going into that before you even went to grad school and you started your master's on this what did you what did you fall what categories or which love five love languages did you lean towards um or do you value i'm i'm definitely a words of affirmation person and a Mm -hmm. gift giver person um you definitely love giving which makes sense and i and you know a lot of those are learned behaviors too my mom my mom is a huge gift giver always has been um and so i was socialized that way right that oh it's someone's birthday we get them balloons because that's what you do Mm -hmm. and so those were those were the two big ones that i had that i that i identified with when i first learned about the concept and you are you will give the best gifts too. They're so thoughtful. Like <laughs> you really you. are thoughtful about them. And that like I was no I hated getting you gifts because like I'm never gonna live up to your gifts. And so I would stress about it because I love getting gifts. Giving gifts gives me anxiety because I want them to love it. Like I like the idea of giving the gift. I like right. seeing them happy. I love all of that. But picking it out, I'm indecisive. So, like, that is not a good combination. And I'm like, I'd rather just get you a gift card and you can get what you want. But no, that's from me. (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, and that was part of what Gary Chapman's whole idea was, was that sometimes the way that you receive love best Mm -hmm. isn't the way that you give it. So, for example, you feel loved when people give you gifts, but you don't express love by giving gifts because it's not what fits with you, according to, like, how he's working. And I, but and to an extent, I do agree to that because, like, I definitely show my love way differently. Like, I'm quality time. Like, you need something from me or words of affirmation. I'm your girl to hype you up. Like, I will hype you up. I will tell you how important you are to me. All these things. But giving a gift is not something that comes to my mind right. at first. I do it more because, like, when, like you said, a birthday, and you know, right. you like have to, or it's customary to do that. Right. Um. But it stresses me out. Like that's, right. just, that's just not natural. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the whole point of his thing and why I took it into the study that I did is because his premise I completely agree with and there's a lot of psychological there's a lot of communication studies literature things that back up his idea that Mm -hmm. people do people communicate how they feel and how they express affection they do it differently that's totally valid the problem I have with Gary Chapman is that he decided there was five categories with nothing other than his anecdotal lived experience and that's where my problem comes have you found other categories then that you think should be included in this so um, it's a little bit bigger question than that. So that is what my master's thesis was doing. Well, let's was get looking, into it, baby. <laughs> was looking at how people express affection. So there is some super fancy psychological statistical stuff that I'm not going to dive all the way into <laughs> here um, to, to explore how people think about ideas or in psychology, we call them constructs. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can create scales. A scale is like a survey that you might take in something that measures some sort of characteristic or some sort of construct right so for example if i were to give you a survey and a question were to ask um like i feel very happy and i feel very sad you would probably answer like oh very happy yes and very sad no and that would be measuring the same construct right mm-hmm. how you feel so i'm, I'm yes. following so yes. far yep. mm-hmm. okay and so there are different ways that you can do this with different constructs and so this is what we did for the love languages 
and how I set up my thesis was asked people a bunch of these questions um, that would traditionally fall into these categories. So expressing love from hugs, kisses, um, saying I love you, spending time with my partner. We asked them 41 different ways that they might express affection to a partner. And then we ran this statistical analysis for those of you that are interested, it's called a factor analysis. And we ran this factor analysis, which is a statistical way of grouping which constructs are being measured. We did this in the United States and we also did this with a sample from Ecuador. It's dope. Because one of my other big problems with Gary Chapman is when he translated this into all these different languages, um, one of the things we know that happens cross-culturally is a construct that exists in one culture might not exist in another. Right, yeah. And there's even in his FAQ at the back of the book, they ask him like, oh, aren't you worried that it's like not gonna translate over to other cultures? And his response was like, oh, I asked a Spanish publisher and they said, trust us, it works in Spanish. So I went ahead. Oh, and I was just like, that's, yucky. That's so, yeah, it's so gross and so just like, I, I asked the word. one publisher. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, so I was like, this is a huge problem. So we also asked a sample in Ecuador to see if it would look different cross-culturally. And to no one's surprise, it looked different cross-culturally. Right, yeah. And in neither culture did we find five love languages. In the United States, we found four, um, three of which lined up pretty much the same. The words of um, affirmation, the physical touch, the gifts, the gift giving. And the fourth, based is the, the fourth one that we found in the specific study that I did, we called friend-based affection. So it was things like listens to me, talks to me about my day, helps me solve my problems. Like things that you would express about your friend um, lo like loaded onto this type. The acts of service and the um, quality time didn't even show up because all of those items did this thing what's called cross-loading, which means they loaded onto all of the factors. Okay, yeah. So this is those are like things I would categorize right. under. So those yeah. are things that basically get grouped in of everybody likes these things. Okay. Everybody wants to spend time with their partner. Everybody wants to receive help. Yeah. And so they didn't stick out as their own unique construct in these models. In Ecuador, we only found two love languages. Really? Okay. The first one we named Amoroso, which is like a loving, caring kind of love. And the things that grouped into this category were things like hugging and kissing, also things like saying I love you, um, things like taking care of me, things that are like what we might categorize as direct or overt mm -hmm. affection. And then the other category that we found, the other love language was gift giving. Was, a, was its own thing. Okay. But that was it. There was no other, like, no other acts of service. There was no other um, physical touch and words of affirmation, although two different constructs in the United States grouped together in Ecuador. They weren't two different. They were just one thing. So I have a question then. So, so for the first one that you just listed, the, mm -hmm. the qualities of that, I forgot the name. What did you call it? Amoroso. Amoroso. Did I say it right? Hey! You got it. Um... <laughs> You listed things that were like quality time, acts of service, and words of affirmation. So what can you explain why it was grouped together as opposed to why Gary, good old Gary, broke it apart? Like what's the, maybe I'm yeah. not understanding that. No, yeah. no, no, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to process if you don't understand the, um, or if, you, if you're not super looped in on like the stats behind it. Yeah. But basically, based on how people answer the questions, so we ask them, how important is it that you receive this in your relationship? And then they'd rate it on a scale of one to five. Okay. And so then what the stats do as they're analyzing this, essentially, is they're looking at things that are happening at this, that are running in the same construct, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a, little, it's a little hard to process. Yeah, stats but, was not for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so they're looking at things of basically seeing 
what things, what, what, con, what, ha, if you answer the same thing on this question, you answer a similar thing on this question. Okay. And the ones that group together, then the statistics tell us, oh, they load into this one abstract okay. construct. Okay. And so the things that Gary Chapman was grouping into different distinct things, just because he decided they were categories, mm-hmm. from the statistics were saying, no, these are all actually grouping into the same construct. See, that is so, like, that's how dangerous it is that he released that because I grew up thinking that was just set in stone how it is, not thinking to do any research beyond <laughs> that. Um, scary. <laughs> right. And that's, I mean, that's a thing that happens a lot with pop psychology. I know that's mm-hmm. something that pop we wanted to get into like a little that. bit about um, because psychology is clickbait. Psychology is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you scroll on your Facebook feed and then about this time of year, I always see at least eight posts that say, psychologists say people who decorate for Christmas earlier are actually happier. And just like, it's, that's not from anything. That's not like a legitimate study, but people are like, oh, they use it to justify their life and their behaviors and they love it. Mm-hmm. So psychology is clickbait. People want it because they want to understand people. They want to know themselves. Yes. And this is dangerous because science, what we say, science is iterative in the idea that if one study finds one thing one time, that doesn't mean it's fact. What it means is the study needs to happen again and again and again, and we need to see the same results. And then we suggest, hey, here's our working theory that this is true. And we keep testing it in different ways to see if it holds up. And that's what science is. And so psychology is so often one person will publish one study and say, hey, here's what we found. And people just latch onto it. And so the yeah. love languages have perpetuated because the construct like we just talked about totally makes sense. The way I feel love, the way you feel love are different. So his premise, what he was working with is totally valid. Right. But the way that he executed it, the way he carried mm-hmm. it out isn't based on any merit, on any literature, on any data. And it can be really dangerous. Um, in this case, not that dangerous, right? Because most of the time it just opens up a conversation for people to communicate about their affection styles. And this usually helps relationships yes. and it's why practitioners use it. But the general premise of saying, hey, here's a thing, and here are like categories that exist within it, let's just use them, that's when it becomes dangerous because we start misrepresenting people and we, yes. it doesn't have any basis to be used correctly. Yeah, and people don't, they don't use it as a tool, they use it as fact. I exactly. think it's the, it's the issue. Um, and how do we shift that? How do we shift that? <laughs> I think it's just obviously getting the word out there and doing stuff like what you've done. You did a whole master's thesis <laughs> on it. Um, and like educating people, obviously, but people aren't going to... It's hard because people don't want to take the time to understand and digest the statistics. They want it quick, like you right, said. Right. <laughs> pop, and I think, pop, psych, pop psychology. Yeah, pop psychology. And I think on a, on a more digestible state basis of what somebody can do is... We, we, you and I were talking about this a little earlier, but, but veering away from categories is something yes. that we... oh my gosh. Categories is something we really, really like in our... In our mm-hmm. Everybody. Human beings, our brain can't process, process all the it. information yeah. that's, that's coming up, so we need to create categories. Um, and that's, you know, categories are good. Like, safe or unsafe, great. Like, you should... Those are helping you from day to day. But when we create categories, you know, like gender, we use, are you a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. And now that we talk about gender in a more fluid and open expression way, which we know is more representative of how Mm -hmm. people are, it frustrates a lot of people because they don't know how to process the information because they want to categorize it. Yes. And so I think on the general scale, not even just in the love languages, but with anything that has to do with psychology is moving away from categories Mm -hmm. and moving into more of this, this scale or the spectrum approach to everything. You know, if someone is depressed or someone has clinical depression, there's a scale, there's a range of it. If someone has any other 
underlying condition or any sort of like personality trait, like extroversion, you can be, someone can be super extroverted like us. Yes. Or someone can be kind of extroverted or someone can be not very extroverted. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things exist on scales, on spectrums. And utilizing that approach to how we talk about people and behaviors is a lot safer way, to, I think, to navigate and like healthily exist within healthy relationships. Two thoughts off of that. And that is a great point. One, the extrovert versus introvert thing, that has always like stressed me out because <laughs> I think people will perceive me as an extrovert, but I really am. Like I'm an introvert. Like yeah. I need my own space. I need my own time to decompress because I get my energy from being alone because I need that downtime. So I can turn it on and be an extrovert because I enjoy being that person and like being out there and going out and dancing and go doing all these things. Right. I enjoy that, but I cannot be that if I don't have my introverted time. Right. And so when people ask me, I'm like, I'm an extroverted introvert, I think, but it's all a scale. And you know what a lot of people, especially on that specific construct, I hear a lot, extrovert, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Oh, I'm an ambivert. This is what people love. Oh, an people love ambiverts. Ambivert is a word that was created that's supposed to mean I'm equally extroverted and equally introverted. Oh, I'm not. I know that. <laughs> and people are really excited about this word because they feel like it more accurately represents them because they hear all these things of like, if you're an extrovert, you're charged by people and you don't need alone time. Or yep. if you're an introvert, you don't like being around people. And people are like, well, I like being around people and I like being by myself. And the reality is that's normal. That's, right. That's, that's what, Most people that's how fall human beings are supposed to be. Yeah. So here, at, here I'm going to lay down for you psychological, con, psychological statistical construct. Yes. Number two for Educate you. Educate me. Um, is a normal distribution. So a normal distribution is like, exactly, mm -hmm. she's drawing it. You can't a see that. A bell curve. It's a bell curve, <laughs> right? Where if we think about how any standardized character trait or typically any sort of like phenomenon that exists in the world, not any, there's a huge caveat on that, but we're not diving into that today. <laughs> a lot of things exist on a bell curve where most people fall within what's called one standard deviation above or below the mean. I okay? just want to make it known that I remember that from stats class. Hey, <laughs> good. I'm glad it stuck with you. And I was you. good at that, but I couldn't do it now. Okay. <laughs> so the standard deviation well, let's even break it down. The mean, right? The mean, a lot of people mm -hmm. are able to wrap their head around. It's the average of something, yes. mm -hmm. right? So let's take um, extroversion since we've been talking about this. If we think about extroversion on a 100 point scale, mm -hmm. right? Zero being completely introverted, 100 being completely extroverted. The mean extroversion we know exists in the population on a normal distribution. So the mean is 50. Yeah. Most people fall right in the middle. And so then if we take standard deviations, we know the majority of people are going to fall within one standard deviation above or below that mean, which is, oh, I should have looked at this one beforehand. I think <laughs> it's about 64, 65% of the population falls in that, in that norm. Then you can take two standard deviations out, two standard above or two standard below, and that fits 94% of the population, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. Only 6% of the population, 6% are going to fall above two standard deviations or below two standard deviations. Right. So that's why the majority of the people, when you ask them, are you introverted or extroverted, people feel like they're both because the majority of people are falling right there in the middle. Right. They are pretty close. Yeah. Oh. And this is the same reason why I have beef with Myers-Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> and Myers-Briggs step up to the stage <laughs> and this is how your tape. <laughs> So oh Myers-Briggs does this same, same problematic thing where they take this, this data that exists continuously is how we call it, and they break it into these categories. Yep. They say, oh, ENFJ you are either, or something like that, yes, right? exactly. Yeah. You are either an extrovert or you are an introvert. Your first letter is going to be an E or an I. 
But the problem of this is let's say we take four people, an extroversion score of like 94. Mm -hmm. Let's say you got an extroversion score of like 52. Mm -hmm. Let's say KK got an extroversion score of like 49 and Ellie got an extroversion score of like 23, okay? Picture those mentally across the scale. Mm -hmm. The Myers-Briggs would group you and me as E's and would group KK and Ellie as I's. But when we look at what that score actually represents, the difference between me at 94 and you at, what did I say, like 51 or something? Yeah, yeah. It's like 40 points apart. Yeah, The difference what? between you and KK between 49 and 51 is three points apart. Okay, yeah, I'm And the difference between KK at 40 whatever and Ellie at 20 whatever is like 20 points apart. So this test is saying you and me being 40 points different on the scale are more alike to each other than you and KK who are three points different. Wow, I hope y'all are following this because this picture on, is painted pristine. Simply because you're on different sides of the 50, 50 mark. And this right. is my problem with Myers-Briggs. And again, Myers-Briggs falls into the same category where here are 16 easy category types and here are famous celebrities that they match and here's an yep. entire profile <laughs> about your strengths and your weaknesses and how you can use it. And it goes back to all these other things is you can do it and utilize it as a tool, mm -hmm. but also recognizing that when we use things like this, these fatal flaws, to say, oh, I'm a 51-point extrovert and you're a 49% like, introvert, like, you're, you're essentially the same person. There's, yeah. no, there's no statistical difference between scoring 49 and 51 yeah. on a scale of extroversion or introversion. You just answered one question slightly different, more than likely. That's so crazy. And that's my beef. Yeah, no, that is valid. The way you painted that picture, I was taken on a journey and I followed every step. So that was good. I hope good. you all followed along because that makes so much sense. And that's kind of, that's extremely scary, actually, that people take this and run with it. Only that. But right. I hope most people understand this is just a tool. Like, I don't know personally anyone who's like, oh, I'm an ENFJ and I do it this way because of that. Like, you right. know, it's right. not their personality. Um, but I still think it's super cool and it's fun to just explore. Like when you said the celebrity things, it's interesting to compare and like, right. oh, I'm like them. Or like, just make those connections and understand yourself deeper. I think that is all it should stand for. Yeah. I can give you a plug if you're looking for a good way to assess personality. Yes. It's the big five personality assessment. You can Google it. There's like a zillion the different websites. The big five. Websites. The big five. I'm going to do that um, actually. The I big five stuff. are five personality traits that are actually found consistently across different psychological literature, across different time periods, across different cultures. They're the five personality traits that are consistently found within people. Um, the first one is extroversion. The second one, well, I don't know the order they go in. I don't know if they go in in order, but extroversion, um, neuroticism, openness to experiences, agreeableness and conscientiousness these are the five big five personality traits and basically suggesting these five components of a person make up their personality and then there's not like a you're introverted or extroverted you don't get like a category out of it you just get a scale you get a number for each one of these these traits to say you're more or less this you're more or less extroverted you're more or less conscientious etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there are actually a lot of ways you can use that type of personality um, literature to look at other types of outcomes like happiness, satisfaction, ways to navigate Ooh, different types of stress. I can't wait to get like, home and take this. And there's a lot more psychology that's actually rooted in that, and it's based on actual legitimate research, research across culture, yeah. across time. So we know that it's a lot more founded. Ooh, I'm excited! Yes, another tool to use, and I'm gonna send it out to people. What is? What's your big five? That's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The big five. Yeah. The big five. I couldn't tell five? you though, like you're gonna get a score for each of those traits. Oh, okay. So it's like 
extroversion yeah. this, neuroticism this, da 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 da. Ooh, I'm gonna make yeah. So <laughs> that's that's how, that's that's how the results of those tests come out. Have you taken one? I have taken a big five. Do you feel that it reflects? Yeah, I do. Well. I do think it reflects me pretty well. And I know one of the things that's really interesting to take in personality tests is like it also involves a really high level of self awareness, right? Um, yeah. Because if you see yourself differently than other people see you, like sometimes what's really interesting is to do a personality se- like test for yourself and then have someone else take it about you. Ooh. Because um, sometimes that can give you yeah. some really unique insight if you're like, this is how I see myself, but this is how another person sees me. Oh my gosh. Um, that, have that you done that? I kind of, in certain capacities, not I, anytime recently. I, I don't, I, this is unhealthy, but I know I'm going to get defensive. Like, what? why do you see me? <laughs> like, well, like, yeah, it, it, precursor to all of you who want to do that, don't do it with the other yeah. person. Send them the link and have them do it. Yeah, don't, do, it all, do it separate. <laughs> don't, don't look at them as they answer the questions about you. <laughs> why are you fucking You know I'm not that bad. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to take that. The big five. Okay, everyone, let's take it together. Share your results with me so I can analyze you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, tying back to the social psychology, when you are on Twitter and you're seeing this stuff come up, like, does it irk you? Oh, it irks, <laughs> it irks me so much. I just and do you want to just go off? It's it's, it's the hill. It's the hill I want to die on. The hill I want to die on is the love languages. If I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Gary Chapman about like him doing what he is. Let's done. do it, y'all. Let's get Gary on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is he alive? So. Ooh, if he's not, RIP, I'm so I'm pretty, sorry. I'm, okay. pretty, I'm pretty sure he is because I'm pretty sure he's continued to like make a living out of this where he has like a way to use it with your children now and in your parenting styles and then like oh, a he's fu- really builds into yeah. your like five, like about eight processing anger and I think it's just like exploded from that because as we've talked about, it's it's clickbait. People like it. People yes. process it. And when it's founded on a, on a construct that so many people relate to, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're right. I do process things differently. People follow it because that's, feel that's like, how people yeah, work. Oh, it relates to me. That makes sense. Oh, damn. Gary, we got some beef and we want to bring you on to discuss it. Myers and Briggs, you can get it too. <laughs> <laughs> are that is that one person? Um, quite honestly, I don't know. Okay, know. well, <laughs> whoever you are. I think it's two people. I'm not sure. Don't quote me. Whoever you are. But do you still, regardless of like knowing what you know, mm-hmm. do you still find interest in it at all or has because of all the research that you've done like really turned you away from these type of tests um that's a really good question um it's interesting because one of the biggest problems we have with psychology literature is that it's not accessible to what we call the lay public or the lay public is just people who haven't studied this who haven't Mm -hmm. taken advanced psychology classes who haven't taken statistical courses so whenever a psychologist publishes a new article about a new construct a person who hasn't studied it doesn't know how to read it. Like not even because they don't know the vocabulary, but they don't know the statistics. They don't, yeah. they can't process that information. And <laughs> and people who work in that, that realm are rewarded with publishing things in academic circles. So a lot of them don't take a lot of investment in making it accessible to, to, to the lay public because that, because it's not part of their job. They don't, yeah. they only have so many time and resources and et cetera. And so I think it is interesting to see people talking about love languages, to see people talking about Myers-Briggs, because it shows that they're trying to be self-reflective of of themselves. They're trying to understand, like, who they are and how that relates to different people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's interesting in that capacity. I just wish this whole under, like, that's what I do. I read it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. They're processing. They're thinking about how they show up in that space. I wish we could now shift 
from this need to and want to be introspective into how to how can we do it in a way that's more sound yes because i think like we've just talked about like the idea and the intent behind using these tools is great it's right. a positive thing you're trying to learn yourself more about yourself and your partner so you can match their energy, um, love them the way they want to be loved. And I, I think that's all beautiful. But like you said, it needs to be more sound. It needs to be set in research if you're going to really use it. Or like right. you said, I didn't even know therapists were using it. Yeah, there's a lot of like marriage and family therapists who will have their, their clients read this book. Um, and like there's a quiz in the book and like they'll have them talk about it in sessions and they'll yeah. use it. Like I know there are clinicians who use it in like premarital counseling and stuff like that because the construct of it is great. Right. The construct yeah. of talking about how we express things is all coming down to how we communicate. Mm -hmm. And we know communication is one of the essential components of having any sort of maintained Ooh, relationship. Yes, uh, <laughs> and so uh, we, we know if we want to be using things that are sound in like helping people, trying to find the most like... I almost want to say equitable way of bringing it into somewhere instead of someone just being like, hey, this is what it is. Let's use this idea when it doesn't encompass a variety of different perspectives or backgrounds, etc. Have you used it at all to help your relationships? Um, use specifically what? But like the five love languages. Have you used components of it? Like, um, kind of. I mean, mm -hmm. usually the five love languages when they come up in my relationships is me telling you why they aren't real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I, ta I talk about when I, when I, when I talk in relationships, I do bring up, you know, this is, this is a way that I like to receive things and this is something mm -hmm. that doesn't help me. Um, like an example I can see is the, the traditional acts of service. Uh, is something that doesn't really resonate with me. When people do things for me, a lot of times it makes me feel unempowered. Whatever mm, the opposite see, that's of so important. Is. Like, it gives um, people language, I feel like, to right. use. Right. And my dad, um, that's for sure his, like, that's his go-to. He does things, he helps people out, and that's how he shows he cares. And so him and I used to struggle with that a lot, I think, when we were younger, because we couldn't talk about it, because we didn't realize that the, the way that we wanted to show each other how we cared about each other was not the way the other person sees yeah. it. Yeah, that, that causes so much conflict. And it's, it goes back to just communicating and right. being able to put, like, that's why I said it's kind of like a language. It gives people, a, like, a vocab to use yeah. to explain it. Because it's hard to talk about your feelings and your wants and, like, how people can help you it, or show you love. That's just, right. it's hard. Um, and I think it gives people that tool to use, which is nice. And when, like, people ask me, <laughs> it's yeah. like I'm like all of them. I want all of them, and like, that's give why me other things. that's why I appreciate you talking about the scale because yes, there's certain ones that I appreciate more than the other, but I would like I would like all of them. Right, 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 exactly. And I think that's just it's one of the ways that we need to move in mm -hmm. just how we talk about things. Like, just it, it's it's a it's a critical thinking framework of how yes, we approach anywhere yeah. of how we approach anything is understanding the underlying thing with it and then how to think about it within the context of whatever situation we're dealing with yeah well before i forget i want to make sure you plug this because you published it this yeah, so one right I, is there two things um so i have published my master's thesis we have not published it in a peer-reviewed journal yet okay um so but still period <laughs> so the actual like psychological master's thesis which is a solid heads up for you a 78 page double space document in microsoft oh, word um so that that is available for free <laughs> hey everybody looking for a good um, read yeah and that is written as how i talked about with like psychological language and stuff like that but um that is published 
I, I don't, it's like not an easy accessible link. If you Google my name, Jenny Miska Cedar, C-E-D-A-R, it's the first thing that pops up. I went to Western Washington University for my master's degree. So the first link is to a, like Cedar is the name of our online like chronicle where they put all the theses and things like that. So it's published there. Um, it has yet to be published in a peer reviewed journal because we're still Still, <laughs> eh, you, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, but you have something else published, right? I do from have undergrad. A, I do have a study published in the Psychi Journal from undergrad. This is about the construct of embodied cognition, which is a huge clickbait. Um, this one, actually, my fun fact, my fun story of this, and I yes, love to share tell, this one. Um, undergrads when they're studying psychology is this one got picked up by the Daily Mail, which is a the Daily Mail is yes. a terrible website. Everybody has um, probably <laughs> seen that on Snapchat. Even. And um. <laughs> They they just post terrible posts about nothing. And so they saw my study after I got published in the Psychi Journal. And they were like, they emailed me and they were asking me like specific questions. Like, how much more would you say this versus this? And I'm like, well, that question like isn't valid in this study. Well, they went ahead and published their article anyways. And it was like a completely like skewed represent, like they said, like they basically did what a lot of these news outlets will do where they'll say, this is like this new study published just found X, Y, Z. So embodied cognition is this like psychology construct that the way we think about the world or the way we experience it impacts how we think about it. So like if there are a ton of studies on this topic that are just looking at very interesting phenomenon. For example, if you're sitting in a wobbly desk and you're taking like a test, you report being less sure of your answers because you feel unsteady yeah. because physically your body is unsteady. Okay. Um, if you're taking, uh, if you are rating the like, um, people who are nicer tend to enjoy sweeter foods um, because like they're sweet, right? It's, this is the idea of embodied cognition. It's a whole, there's a lot to it. Don't take that at face value. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But the Daily Mail thought it was interesting. So my study was looking at how we experience flavors, specifically sweetness and spiciness, and if it affects how we rate somebody else's attractiveness, right? Because yeah. we call people like honey or sweetie if they're like yeah, in our so romantic cool. relationship, or sometimes we call people like sexy or spicy if we're mm-hmm. talking about their physical attraction. And so that was the study I did back in undergrad. We had uh, women rate faces of men while eating different flavors. And that it, we did find that, that the women who were consuming the spicy food rated the men, the same men, as more attractive than the women in the other groups. Hmm. Um, I was in this study. I don't remember which part I was in, but I was in it. <laughs> um, and so this was like, going back to what we said at the beginning, this was one study that found one thing. We're not saying it's conclusively what it is. We say we need to replicate it. We need to yeah. do it again. We need to use different circumstances, see, you know, Variables, control for any yeah. potential confounds, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, which side fact we did try and replicate it when I was in grad school and we couldn't we did not find the same things oh really in all three groups rated the men exactly the same like there was no difference um so this is why science is so important because things like this are like why then the daily mail originally found my first article wrote this whole pop press piece saying oh so if you want a a man to find you like sexier like bring him on a date (laughs) to a spicy spicy restaurant And it's completely... I can totally see that. Oh, my God. And, like, the picture they posted has this, like, woman sucking on a pepper, like, super seductively. Of course. Of, oh, and, of like, course. And then it actually got picked up by K-Fan in um, Minnesota, like, the radio station Shut here. Up. And then they talked about that on their morning show on K-Fan. My dad was listening to the radio one morning and was like... And your name was on they it? Didn't, they, didn't say, they didn't say my That's name, rude. but they were like, oh, this new study out of St. Cloud. And, like, they... Um, That's... Did like then happen? they were talking about it and my dad was like oh my god that's my daughter's study yeah. but they were referencing the one that was mis 
characterized so they were like they were almost like making fun of it on the show mm-hmm. which makes sense from the context that the, right, the, the, the miss post given. one was mm-hmm. given right so um did that make me mad that they didn't give me credit um no it didn't give me it didn't make me mad because they misrepresented what i said but so then after k-fan talked about it somebody else on like a daily like a daily talk show on the radio in minnesota heard that and was like oh we should interview this woman so like i woke up that morning to a facebook message um saying like hey do you want to talk on the radio later today and like i talked i had like a 20 i think like a 20 minute segment with this guy and just talked to him about kind of some some of the similar um, constructs that you and i are talking about now about how science is iterative how it's not just one study and like how we have to repeat it we have to you know not take things out of context and understand the whole context of it critically think about what we're processing yeah Um, that one was published but then it had its whole derailment. So. Yeah, scary. That's scary, though. How news, like um, news. What's the word I'm looking for? News outlets. Outlets. That's not even a hard one. News outlets can take something and skew it, and people will read and buy it and like take it at face value. It is like you see it everywhere. You right. see it in politics. You see it in every facet of life, and it's like, whoo! It's really scary if you go down that rabbit hole and start to think about it. Right. And it and makes a lot of sense to why people are very ignorant, myself included. Like. Right. We no, and it makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, on the extreme ends of that, it builds up to conspiracy theories. Yes. Conspiracy <laughs> theories build <laughs> yeah. up to violence. Like, it, oh, it, yeah, it can, I mean, in this context with most psychological research, you know, miss saying there are five love languages and you have no data doesn't really, yeah, huge doesn't impact. really harm yeah. anybody. But like, that general process of thinking without backing up what you're mm-hmm. doing is what leads into some of those really dangerous paths. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about what you're currently doing right now, but do you feel that you want to continue like doing any research about this or do you feel like you're going to replicate this? <sighs> That's a really good question. Every time someone asks me about my thesis, I get really excited to them and I get so like into it. I'm I know. Like, That's what I'm like. I'm like, I need to do it again. again. <laughs> I need to do it again. And then, you know, life sets back yeah. in and time and priorities and things. And so, um, the in a dream world i would love to be traveling the world and like meeting colleagues who speak other languages who know how to do measurement and variance there's my third psych stat drop for you today (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, who know how to do that who can help look at the like translate my measures like adequately use their populations in a way that's also benefiting them right one of my problems with psychology literature in general is it typically is just surveying white undergraduates mm, um who, that's real like who are from the united states whose first mm-hmm. language is english and then they find all of these same results and then they're like this is a true to everybody to everybody and yeah it's not including all like the majority of the world and so this was part of why i wanted to go into cross-cultural psychology is to try and create a more equitable balance for people who are not being represented in psychology and making sure that their contributions are positively benefiting them because we also know psychology has historically um marginalized people of different identities and use them as test subjects and like created this general weariness and so like when people of marginalized identities are included in research then they're frequently like they're hesitant to participate again because of what's happened to them yeah and so it skews how we just like how we are able to draw conclusions about the human race because we're not including everybody because we know it's been harmful and so that was part of what drew my interest in a cross-cultural psychology in the first place is wanting to make sure that people are not being misrepresented to make sure that people are getting their voices and their identities heard in the way that like fits for them you came on this podcast and dropped facts only (laughs) 
only like I what I love about this is and I've always admired this about you one you have patience and you can explain things very well to like because you're very you're very smart you're very intelligent and you have a way of taking those thoughts and making it digestible to people who maybe did not go to get their master's in stats so like it's just it's I really appreciate that about you and I think there's a lot of my listeners that are going to also appreciate that because this has been very educational and I think everyone needs to listen to this. So share it. <laughs> well, thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Kind of like yes. I was just talking about. Every time someone asks about my thesis, I get all excited. And I'm always like, I'm going to write an op-ed. Because <laughs> I like want I want people who are not in academia to be able to digest what I did. And so the idea of doing it in a podcast and being able to talk about it, which is a form of media that people, lay people, people outside of academia actually yeah. like digest was really exciting for me because mm-hmm. this is a passion this is a topic I feel passionate about not just within the context of love languages but this whole construct of thinking critically about how to digest information yes um, is just so important and so being able to speak about it in a media that people can access is like a really really awesome opportunity I haven't gotten to utilize yet and that's so important because we are in an age where we have all of this information at the the touch of our fingers but we don't know how we didn't learn right. we haven't been properly taught how to take that in and question it and do additional research like we read it for I know I read things for face value or not necessarily face value but like I'm like oh okay but I won't I don't care enough to go and research it more to see how truthful it is right um so I think yeah this is really helpful and I I can't wait to have you back on because I know there's so many topics that we can talk about oh it'll be so fun oh yeah it's gonna be so much fun so thank you so much uh please plug anything that you want to any Oh man, I don't know. I, I'm not on Instagram. I got off the Instagram in 2018. As you should. Um, I'm not on Instagram. Uh, you can add me on LinkedIn if you want. My name is Jenny Miska. Yes, there you go. And like, but but your papers is there? Any, you said just Google you. Yeah, I have my papers linked on my LinkedIn. Quite honestly, perfect. Um, okay. So that is a way to find me, and I love building. Um, I, I love building networks. So that is probably the most effective way to get connected with me. LinkedIn, y'all. Find her on LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This was like seriously so much fun. And you made my job easy. You were just dropping knowledge bombs left and right (laughs) out here. So I hope y'all enjoyed this one. This was really interesting for me. I love this stuff. And so please give me feedback. If this is something that you like to hear, I am definitely down to do more episodes like this. Thanks so much, Liana, for having me. You did it. (laughs) All right, y'all. It is that dreaded time. It is time that we part ways. And you wait a whole week to hear another episode. (laughs) You don't gotta go home, but you gotta get the H-E double hockey sticks out of here. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, y'all. I really appreciate you. Please make sure you are either liking, subscribing, sharing if you a real one, this podcast so we can continue to grow. And if you're not already and you want to, you can follow me on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Liana Hauser. And if you don't know how to spell it, it is L-E-A-U-N-A-H-A-U-S-E-R. Alrighty, y'all. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next Sunday for another episode of the Butterfly Effect Podcast. Bye!